This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Some things are slow, like snail races. Other things are fast, like Xfinity XFi. Get fast speeds, even when everyone is online. Working to make Wi-Fi simple, easy, awesome. More at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. The holidays are coming, and that means sending and receiving presents. Receiving presents. But sending primarily. How do you keep your packages from getting destroyed in the mail? Sarah Olms worked behind the scenes loading packages for UPS. That's United Parcel Service. Sarah, what's your number one tip? I basically tell everybody, whatever you're going to ship, make sure you feel comfortable that you can stand on it and it won't get crushed and that you can throw it against the wall and nothing will happen to it. <laughs> you did all those things? That's how I ship my stuff. So you've stood on everything you're going you're gonna to ship? Well, I mean, I know how things work. So <laughs> if you're shipping something like pillows, you don't need to worry about it. But if you're sure. shipping something that actually costs a lot of money, your best insurance is just more packing material. So, but this this kind of this rule that you should be able to stand on it. This comes from your observation. So, what have you seen done to packages behind the scenes? Well, it's not so much the people that load the packages; it's the equipment that moves the packages. So everything goes on slides and chutes and belts. And when things get backed up, other packages are pushing on it. So it's like not necessarily a person standing on it, but with you know fifty packages pushing behind it, sure. it's basically like five people are standing on it. It's like package versus package back there, and you want to prepare your package to be the strongest. Yeah, it's like a package rodeo. I mean, there is a human factor, even though it's a lot of machines. Is there anything I can do uh, to the package to ensure that it'll be treated carefully? Anything that's going to distract me from the fact that I have this job is basically going to make me happier. So stickers, happy birthday, a little message. I've had friends that knew I worked there, and they just wrote something on there hoping I would see it, and I actually did. So that package gets a special treatment. Okay, so let's say I want to do that. I want to put a special note on there for the shippers. What can I do if I don't know the person uh, handling my package? Oh, you could just do anything that's funny. I mean, have a nice day or hope you like loading or something like that, (laughs) or you're almost done. Hope you like loading. anything that basically distracts them. And uh, writing fragile on there, does that help me? No, not at all. Um, (laughs) Every package says fragile. I think it's standard on cardboard boxes these days. What's one of the biggest mistakes people make when they're uh, shipping or packing things? I'd say the biggest mistake is not using enough tape and then assuming that the bottom of the box is always going to be the bottom of the box. When they come down my slide, there's six sides to a box, and whichever one's on the bottom happens to be the bottom at that time. So I'll pick up a package that is upside down, and there's only one piece of tape across the top. Everything spills out. What do you do in that situation then? Do you have to just put it all back in the box and tape it up? Yeah, pretty much. It ends up being a tape ball by the time it gets where it's going. What's the craziest thing you've seen come out of a box? Well, we did happen to get a lot of um, a lot of stuff going to adult stores. Uh-huh. A lot. That was what surprised me. Now, you mentioned that I could write something on the package that would put me in the good graces of the people shipping my package. If I wanted a package to arrive safely to its destination, what would be the worst thing I could write on that package? Um, do not crush, do not do this, you know, do not do that. Basically, tell a person how to do their job and, like, basically that you think your package is the most important one that we'll see that day. I, I like this so much because it's like uh, it's there's a whole other thing going on. Like, I'm sending what I'm sending, but I'm also sending a message to 
other people too. It just it adds like another avenue of communication in the world. There's something really nice about that. Yeah, yeah. I've seen some packages that had some funny things written on them, like uh, holiday turkeys, and you get to put a personal message on the label. And I was loading about 600 of them a night at least, and uh, one of them just said to one, "Here's a big turkey for a big turkey." You know, love Tom or whatever. I thought that was funny, so that kind of brightened my day. Sarah Olms wrote about her experiences loading packages for Cracked.com. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, how to measure the wind in your own backyard. We'll also learn how blind people take notes. But first, we have just learned that North Korea has its own unique set of rules for the game of basketball. For example, slam dunks are worth three points. A three-pointer is worth four points if it doesn't hit the rim. I don't know if it's still called a three-pointer if it's worth four points. It's called a four-pointer. Probably. Uh, If you miss a foul shot, if it doesn't go in, that's minus a point. You lose a point. And any basket you make of any kind in the last three minutes of the game is worth eight points. To get a sense of how this will go during a game, we've invited TJ Jagodowski and Dave Pesquese to call a basketball game for us using these new rules. Welcome back to the uh, Supreme Commander's telebroadcast of the Anmok Riverboat Gamblers in their patented crimson and cream, and the Pyongyang Yankees in their purity and blood. The, uh, the Yankees have it up at the top of the arc. Yep, fiddling and diddling out beyond the three or perhaps four-point line. Mm-hmm. Ah, that's a beautiful day for basketball. First foul shot is up, and, and for the glory of the Supreme Commander, one point. One point. So that's in the positive. That's one plus positive. one point for that free throw. Uh, that Down by 13. It's getting late early, Dave. There's a possible. Uh, that, that hit the back of the rim. Unfortunately, that is then only three. It looked, it looked silky from here. I'm going to say that's four. We'll let that go to the Supreme Leader's discretion. Still trying to work that inside game. Fan Rowe setting up in the post. Bounce pass inside. Flushes it for three. Ooh. And goes up over the rim. Tried to escape. The ball tried to escape. The ball will be replaced. And thankfully it was captured. Replaced mm. with a much more um, obedient ball. More. With three minutes and five seconds left, the Pyongyang Yankees find themselves down by 16. And, of course, at three minutes, all field goals will be worth eight points. In a few short seconds, they will be down by only two possessions. Two-possession game, as opposed to eight buckets, six dunks, uh, an infinite number of free throws missed and made. Correct. Or mm, four inf- swished three-pointers. Yes, an infinite number of free throws. That's a long game. Yeah, we'll be here forever. Hey, Andrew, what can we help you with? Well, so I've been wondering about something for a while now, and that is, how do blind people take notes? You're just curious. You don't have any need for this information, really. No, no. I mean, uh, I'm blessed with sight, but I, I'm, you know, burdened by curiosity. Okay. <laughs> sure. All right. Okay. What yeah. do you think? What will you do with this information once we find it for you? I'm going to use it against my nemesis. Okay. Good idea. <laughs> All right. Well, we're gonna we'll look into this for you. That would be great. 
Tommy Edison could help with this. Uh, you may know him as the blind film critic. Do we need all those people? Anne Hathaway, Morgan Freeman, Matthew Modine, the legendary Michael Caine. Who can forget Gary Oldman and about 350 others? So Hans Zimmer does the score, right? And it's good, but I just felt like it was the music for the other two movies. I mean, it's like they took the music for the first two Batmans and put it on shuffle. So for Dark Knight Rises, I'm going three out of four eyes open. Maybe it would have been better in 3D. So, so Tommy, uh, tell us, how, how do blind people take notes? Well, you know, I, um, to be honest, like when I was in school, I used to just record classes, and then, um, you know, I would braille them out later for myself. Um, but, you know, I, I think that's the best. For me, that's my favorite way is just to record it, especially now with, you know, with the iPhone and stuff. It's real easy. Just voice memo and, you know, record whatever you need. And you you said uh, braille them out. So how, how does that work? Oh, so there's a um, well, I, there's a machine called the Perkins Brailler, which is an old thing, but uh, it's it's got uh, six keys. It's sort of like a quartz sonographer's uh, machine. Okay. So it's a lot of contractions and things. So for example, like E R would be one character rather than two, or F O R would be one rather than two, where T H E or I N G or different things like this. It's like shorthand, I guess, would be the best way to put it. Yeah. I I'll tell you what, I worked for a long time as a traffic reporter on the radio. Okay. And in that job I never took notes. I just kept it all in my head. Because it was, you know, the same roads all the time. Um and so people would just call them with a crash and I would just keep it in my head and just put it on the radio. Um, and that's how I did that. But, you know, for something like class, it's a little bit more important. So, so I'm trying to get a, a handle on this because for me, Braille seems like such a, a complex uh, and difficult system uh, for, I mean, first of all, just to understand, but also to kind of create Braille. Would you bring those notes into the class then? Well, sure. If they're just for me, absolutely. Why not? You know, but like if somebody needed to share my notes, I mean, I could put them on the computer too, I suppose, and just type. Um, but for me, I like Braille. It's you know, it's it's easy enough for me to work with, and you know, it's right there on paper, which is nice. It it never occurred to me until thinking about this college classroom that uh, it would be a lot harder for uh, to get away with cheating uh, if you were blind. Like you can't you can't reach over and feel somebody else's test, or you can't feel their notes. No, you can't. But you know, if like if there was some way to you know like have a bit of braille with you i suppose you could cheat that way if you really wanted to um yeah. oh. i don't know i never <laughs> I, I wasn't much of a good student <laughs> can i can i ask you another question while we have you sure you can ask anything you like well i you know people always say that when people lose one sense that their other senses are stronger uh-huh is that is that for real i'm gonna say no and i'm gonna tell you why okay um now again, this is there's, I have no scientific evidence to back this up or anything. But for me, um, I, you know, I think I just use my other senses more than you guys do. So in other words, I think if one of you guys were to lose your sight right now, you would be amazed at the things you'd be able to hear, touch, smell, and taste. I really believe that, and it's just you know it's practice. Because see, sighted people, again, from what I can gather, you guys use sight a lot. A real lot. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you know, a real lot. And I think if that was taken from you, your other senses would just pick up the slack. I think that's just the way the human body works. Have you been in situations where you pick up a, a scent and other people uh, aren't aware of it yet, and you have to kind of warn them that something bad's coming? Yeah, sometimes there was sound. I, we <laughs> we did a um, 
I forget what film it was now. I think it was X-Men or something like that. But there was some scene where there was a car alarm in it. And during the review, I was like, well, that's going to help. <laughs> and my friend Ben, who was editing it, is like, I never even heard that car alarm in that piece. It's amazing. And for me, it was right out front, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I wonder if, if reading Braille has, has made your fingers more sensitive to things. Nah, playing bass guitar and playing guitar sort of screwed that all up. Oh, you just wasted them all. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I have calluses and stuff, you know what I sure. mean? Sure. You know, so, but... Um, Does that get in the way of being able to read things? Um, sometimes, yeah. I mean, like when I first picked it up, I was, you know, my fingers were all torn up. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you get to play more, your fingers get used to it and stuff. So, um, but man, in the beginning, there were, you know, a couple of fingers I couldn't feel a thing with for a while. But, you know, the tips were just gone. Well, this is great, Tommy. Thanks so much. Well, thank you guys very much. It was fun talking. Now, now we've been following the aftermath of the typhoon in the Philippines. And one of the things we've been hearing about are the different descriptions of the storm itself. Now, what you are about to hear is not a poem. This is taken from a scientific communication tool called the Beaufort Scale, which basically matches up wind speeds to observable phenomena in the world. This was created more than 100 years ago. Moderate breeze raises dust and loose paper. Small branches are moved. Fresh breeze. Small trees and leaf begin to sway. Crested waves form on inland waters. So the, the idea with the Beaufort scale is that rather than saying strong breeze, which means different things to different people, you say uh, what is actually happening. You know, uh, large branches in motion, umbrellas used with difficulty. You're taking something subjective and making it objective. Scott Hewler wrote a book about the Beaufort scale called Defining the Wind. Scott, lis- listening to the, the descriptions from the Beaufort scale, it's crazy that this is a, a scientific tool because it, it really does read like poetry. Yes, you're right to say that it feels poetic because if you listen to those from uh, number five, that's iambic. It's amazing. It's iambic tetrameter as it happens. And if you look at the next one, crested wavelets form on inland waters. That's trochaic pentameter. That's pretty amazing stuff for a committee of engineers. So it was engineers. There was no no uh, no English majors in there. There were no English majors involved. Did they intend for it to sound like poetry, or did was it just the kind of spare language and it ended up that way? I think that it was spare language that ended up that way. What I would say is they intended for it to be very good and very useful and very spare. And I think that might be as good a definition of poetry as you're going to find also. Well, t- tell us kind of the story of, of the creation of the scale, how it came to be what, what we, we know today. Well, what happened was since the dawn of time, people have been aware of wind and its sort of magical properties that you can feel it, you can perceive it, but you can't see it. So it's very difficult to describe. So people learned quickly that if you want to describe the wind, you have to describe what the wind is doing to things. You can't just describe wind itself. So that is how people have always done that. And as science began developing, people started to think of ways to organize uh, the wind, how you would describe it. And you would come up with different, you know, breeze versus gale versus storm versus wind. And time after time, the problem was that my light breeze might be your gentle breeze. 
So unless we have something against which we can compare them with that we can all be sure of, the words don't carry much actual meaning. As the uh, anemometer technology developed that people could really understand, well, how many miles an hour is that? They started to observe around in the 1900s. They started to observe and I think eight different places, either six or eight different places around England, they had people sitting and taking observations. And when it came time to sit down and compile those observations and make one final scale, uh, this is the scale that resulted from that. Wow. Hey, can we try something here? Um, I, I think what I'm going to try uh, creating some, some wind here uh, with my microphone. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take the windscreen off here. I'm gonna try. Uh, I'm gonna try blowing on Mike, and I'm gonna tell you what I see, and you can tell me where it corresponds to the scale you have in front of you. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Did you catch that? Okay. So, so what I saw was I saw a little bit of shirt movement, a little bit of shirt movement, a tiny bit of hair movement on the top of his head. He's he's wearing a chain necklace, metal chain necklace, which did not move at all. Uh, he squinted a little bit. Where where do you think okay. that corresponds? I'm going to call that to light breeze. Wind felt on face, leaves rustle, ordinary vein moved by wind. It's going to be a little bit more than direction of wind shown just by smoke because if you were able to see his shirt moving, I'm going to say that that's strong enough to probably move, move a vein. Um, but uh, number three, gentle breeze would be leaves and small twigs in constant motion. No way. It doesn't sound like you were getting that much on. No, he didn't. So, Right. There you go. See, that's great. That's perfect. And that's what I think everybody should be doing. I get Beaufort scales in the mail from people all the time who come up with different, with you know, a laundry-based Beaufort scale or, um, you know, a uh, lawn furniture-based Beaufort scale. People send them to me. <laughs> What's the, what would a laundry Beaufort scale measure and look like? Well, I can read it to you. I have it right out here. Um, somebody sent me this fellow named Robert Spears sent me this some time ago. Calm, shirt sleeves hanging straight down. Light air, hankies begin to slant slightly. Slight breeze dripping from woolen socks uneven. Occasional light flap on corner of dish towels. Let's jump up. Strong breeze, regular flapping of heavy woolens, light fraying of older t-shirts. Um, whole gale. Most of wash, either tied around line or gone. Diapers lodged in neighbor's pear tree. And then hurricane, pole falls, veranda roof gives way under weight of uprooted cherry tree. Wash, unrecoverable. That's amazing. I have one, uh, I have the modified penitentiary Beaufort scale, which was sent to me by a convicted murderer. That's pretty good. Um, Wait, what's, what's an example of something on the modified penitentiary Beaufort scale? Um, let's see. Um, five, fresh breeze, plastic compost cans sway, rats face into wind. Oh. Um, number seven, moderate gale, tin roofs peel back, inconvenience, walking while shackled, yard closed. What's, can you read for us the number 13, the description of the hurricane on the original scale? Yes, yes, yes. 13, hurricane, devastation occurs. That is a two-word sentence of such incredible grace and power that 
it, it, it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Well, Scott, thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Sent today at 12.45 p.m. Hi, my name is Jen, and I'm calling from Raleigh, North Carolina, and I listen to How to Do Everything While Curating Upcoming Exhibitions at the North Carolina Museum of Art. Love the podcast. Thanks, guys. All right, Jen, these next 15 seconds are for you. Do do you remember this scene in Ferris Bueller? Oh, yeah, when he drives his uh, father's car through the glass. That was a different scene. Into the ravine. This was in the art museum scene. When he's more relevant to Jen's interests. Oh, when he becomes Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. Yeah, it was uh, was kind of a touching, wordless scene in the art museum in Chicago. Ah, these next 15 seconds are for you, Sloan. Last week on the show, we debated the ethics of ordering fabric swatches from a furniture company to uh, as a way to get free coasters. Really what we were doing was trying to absolve Ian of his guilt from freeloading. We heard from Susan on Twitter who says if you uh, know an architect, they probably have fabric and tile samples around. That's another way to get free coasters. And Juniper here also has a line on free coasters. Well, I went to Home Depot And, you know, you always go for one or two things, but you end up wandering up and down every single aisle. And I went through the flooring section, and I noticed that they have these little wooden squares that are free samples for you to take home that show off the wood floors that you can buy. And I thought, well, that would be perfect for a coaster. (laughs) So I picked six different types of wood and took them home. Yeah. Thanks for this tip, Juniper. You're very welcome. That does it for this week's show. What'd you learn, Ian? I I learned that uh, you can you can communicate to the the people shipping your package by just writing message on the package. And that never occurred to me. I I have to say I'm more interested in sending this note to the people at UPS than I actually am in getting gifts for my loved ones. You'd rather send a note to UPS uh, on the package that you're sending to your family. Yeah, I may just send empty boxes to my loved ones. So our, our blind film critic, uh, Tommy Tommy Edison. Yeah. Do you think people called Tom Thomas Edison Tommy? Hey, Tommy. Oh yeah. Excellent, probably, excellent yeah. light bulb. Probably when he was a kid. Tommy. It's true, like we don't hear a lot of those famous, like. August writers. Like there's an Ernie Hemingway wouldn't have done well. How to Do Everything was produced this week by Jessica Reedy and Stephen Tobias. Our intern this week is Stephen Tobias. How did he do that? We would like to congratulate uh, the many, many winners of last week's word search contest. At press time, the following people have given us the correct answers. Amy, Asher, Raul, Michael, Kaylee, Jay, Mary, Christopher, Andrew, Michael, Patricia, Vince, Joshua, Donna, Marcos, Juniper, Glenn, Maggie, Paul, Deborah, Joseph, Brynn, Jack, Micah, Sean, Jennifer, Peter, David, Bart, Laura, Irene, Catherine, Aurora, Melody, Molly, Maria, Nick, Stephen, Nick, Crystal. Your prizes are on the way. Keep a lookout for them. I think you're really going to like them. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. 
And visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks. And Dave, uh, I, don't, I don't go back this far, but you, you've you been calling games since Kim oh, Il-sung. Kim Il-sung, I remember his first game. He scored 1,000 points oh, in the great. first quarter. It was tremendous. And uh, also, yes, invent right after he invented the world. <laughs> <laughs>